Hello, beautiful listeners, and thank you for tuning in to Writing a Way to Wellness, a podcast produced by Girls Right Now and hosted by me, Sally Familia. Writing a Way to Wellness is a podcast where Girls Right Now community members of all ages, racial and cultural backgrounds, careers, and crafts engage in holistic conversations about wellness in relation to the arts of writing. From avid journalists to authors committed to passing down the tools they have learned to survive the silly world, Writing a Way to Wellness is the bridge that leads us to gentle hearts and creative minds. For this first episode, Grossway Now's creative marketing director, Shel Carter-Wilson, hosts a conversation about processing grief with Neanda Tom, our wellness advisor and the former mentee of Girls Right Now. Welcome. In this episode of Writing Our Way to Wellness, produced by Girls Right Now, we're talking about grief. In my family, we say that joy and sorrow live in the same house. I laugh when I cry, and even in my deepest moments of sorrow and grief, I'm able to smile. I laughingly say, of 2022, it was the year that everybody died, until 2022 became 2023, and I had yet to be done with my grief. Physics, which might not seem related to grief and sorrow, teaches us that electromagnetic anomalies precede catastrophic earthquakes. Even Mother Earth has her tells. Losing my mother was the last of my redwoods to fall. She was my electromagnetic anomaly, the thing that changed my world. More than a year since I lost her, grieving still required so much energy of me that I occasionally forget to breathe. My therapist, who is my guide to living in this new world, tells me that grief never ends. It changes. Change is the way of nature. Raised in a matrilineal family by strong women loved by strong men, when our granny, our matriarch, died and mommy ascended, I felt a shift. When mommy let go of my hand, the bedrock beneath my feet crumbled as the earth shook. I should have fallen through the ground, but my ancestors would not let that happen. Now, I am she who leads our family. One of my coping strategies is my faith. When mommy died, I offered this supplication. Mother God, I am exhausted by all this grief. I realize that I could pretend to be strong enough to bear it, but I choose not to. I humbly yield, preferring to hide myself in you. Cradle me beneath the shadow of your weight. Let my ancestors whisper words of affirmation to my weary heart. Encourage to trust your will. I stand, but only by your grace. Daughter, granddaughter, and legacy of queens unnamed to me except in spirit, deal gently with your humble spirit. Ashe, amen, and so it is. Let's talk about grief in all its forms. I encourage you to take your time grieving, making space and silence for the tears if they fall, embracing laughter when it comes, I invite my guest, Nanda Tom, 
also known as Nay, to introduce herself and then tell us the things that we should know about her. Nay? I <laughs> had to take a deep breath um, before starting and after what you shared. Um, so I guess a little about me is I am a therapist. Um, I'm also a Girls Right Now alum, um, also a lover of music, and I'm also a person dealing with grief. Um, most recently, my aunt, um, who is my oldest aunt, the closest thing I had to a grandmother, uh, passed away. And I am still grappling with that um, loss as well as it's about to be a year since uh, my therapist passed away. So two huge losses um, in under a year. And I, as much as I help people process grief, I don't know if I've processed my own. Um, but that's where I'll start. Um, yeah, that's where I am today, being open and as honest as I can be. We agree that we would let the tears fall as they may, and they have. Um, but we're just going to make this a conversation about and the things that we don't talk about, about culture, maybe about our traditions, how we might normalize death and grieving, and most importantly, how we carry that into healing. So with that, I'll let you lead us. I guess I'll start with culture. Being from a background, very much Caribbean background of, you know, coming from a line of people who led churches, pastored churches, founded churches, um, grief is very nuanced, but I know growing up, it was also kind of like we tell each other and we tell ourselves, um, this person has moved on to the afterlife. We will get to see them again. We'll be fine. And it kind of stopped there. And dealing with the, the first loss in my life of someone close to me when I was a kid, I remember thinking, although this is supposed to help me feel better, I don't feel better. Um, I don't feel better in the now. Uh, what am I supposed to do until that time comes? When is that time coming? I had so many questions. Um, but, you know, it was the way that I was taught to believe and feel was just kind of like find relief in the idea that you'll see them again um and even at 30 I'm not yet at that place where I'm finding that relief just yet and so I know culturally a lot of people view grief differently um when my when my aunt passed away my mom did something that is quite common um in other cultures I don't know if this is really a Caribbean thing but she cut all of her hair off um and I remember I got on FaceTime with her when she was back home. And I was like, where's your hair? And she's like, it's gone. What did, where did it go? What's going on? And my mom had very long, gray, beautiful hair. Um, but, you know, she's like, I think it's just that I'm sad. And, you know, we spoke about it. And she was like, I think I had things to let go of. Um and I guess the most physical representation of letting go of something was her hair. Wow. So 
I know people cope in different ways. Um, sometimes I don't even know if what I'm doing is coping, but coping is one of those things you kind of start doing and you make it up as you go along. So there really is no wrong way or no singular correct way to grieve. That's learned um, in my own experience and in my experience counseling people um, who are dealing with grief. That is so interesting that you talked about your mom because when I lost my mom, I came home from the funeral. And at the time, my dreadlocks were well down my back, almost past my hips. And in a singular instance, I said to my family, it's got to go. And they looked at me and I said, I can't be this person anymore. And I went to my stylist and I went from long, layered, mostly the same length locks that I used to pull into a ponytail or a bun. And I did something that was really shocking for me. I got a deep undercut and a very one side. It was so dramatically different than anybody I'd ever been. And to hear you say that your mother did something similar, I didn't know what I was doing, but you know, maybe I was tapping into some cultural memory because I knew I couldn't be that person anymore. Mm. And as my hair is growing back now, I am letting it go gray because it's something I wanted to do for a long time. But I guess in my head, in my ascendancy to the elder of our family, it's time. So it's interesting to hear that there's a cultural basis for that that I tapped into without even knowing. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny. I think about it now. As you can see, I have sort of a side under situation. <laughs> and it's funny. In retrospect, every time I was grieving something, I decided to cut my hair. It wasn't always people. Um, sometimes it was, you know, the loss of a certain part of myself or the end of a chapter. Um, losing a friend not to death, but just access to that person and knowing that the friendship was over. So I think I've been doing that the whole time and I just caught it. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's something about here that holds weight and memory. Oh, yeah. And so it does feel good to let it go. Maybe not at first. Um, <laughs> every time I've heard somebody say they've cut their hair, you know, drastically or, you know, took off a lot of it at one time. It's never just like, a, oh, and then I fell in love with it and it was great. It's like there's a, a, a type of mourning that goes along with cutting yeah. your hair, too. Yeah, I, I get that. It it was very freeing for me. Um, and this the my stylist is somebody who's cared for my locks for more than 10 years. And she did not want to let all that length go. And I was like, it's got to go. I just it's it's got to go. And. Whenever I get my locks cut, I keep them. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was my decision not to hold on to them, but I have burned them or I have done something that's kind of sacred with them to honor them. And to your point, maybe I feel like the memories are held. I don't know what it is, but that that is interesting. Yeah. It's almost like the locks are an artifact now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, something from the older version of you, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, an artifact in a museum might be from a past life or something prehistoric. Um, this is your personal artifact. And I, I do think hair holds memory. Um, and sometimes 
not the best memories. And that's probably why, you know, when bad things happen to people, they're like, okay, this is the first thing to go. (laughs) I like that. I like that. You talked about grieving relationships or things besides just the loss of a person to death. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And, you know, particularly from a therapeutic perspective. Yeah. So grief, um, grief is, is tough because a lot of people who showed up to me for grief counseling, um, and I'll give some context. So I was doing grief counseling, uh, in grad school for my internship. My last year of grad school was doing internship, um, at the school counseling center with undergrad students. Um, and seminary students who were basically they had to do about five sessions of grief counseling to get through the semester. It was part of their requirement, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting way to pose grief counseling because typically you go voluntarily because you're grieving. Um, but what I found is that most people who showed up, if they were not aware, they were grieving something or someone. Um, so being required to come, some people were like, OK, I needed this because I lost such and such person last year. A lot of people showed up like, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about, but I'm here. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, and my my one of my first questions would always be like, what is something you're sad about losing? Not necessarily a person, maybe a thing, uh, maybe a chapter in your life, maybe an opportunity. And usually that was a very um, good place to start because people would sit down and realize like, oh, I, I did lose something or I did lose a relationship. Um I did lose a version of myself. And so the way that our brains process grief, although we may not be losing physical access to a person, it very much is similar to doing that. Um, We don't really have a way to differentiate like, okay, I'm losing access to this person versus this person is gone, you know, from everyone from this realm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I found that a lot of people who showed up you know, when one guy told me he was grieving the loss of his dad and I'm like, well, what happened uh, with your father and what was the circumstances around his death? He's like, he's not dead. He just, he got deported. Wow. Um, there was a person who presented who had recently um, lost access to their best friend, access in the sense of they had a fallout, you know, things got really sour. Um, this was someone that she missed a lot. Um, but she also realized that it was time to let go. Both of them realized that. And even though it ended not so amicably, it was kind of like, all right, this is us shutting the door on purpose. Um, and around that time, I also was grieving myself in ways that I didn't realize it until, you know, that season was over. Um, my own health, you know, had gotten sick around that time. And, you know, I have an autoimmune disease and I'm still trying to navigate how to treat and take care of and deal with. But at the time, my biggest loss was my health, not being able to just simply get up and will my body to do things anymore. And so it was interesting to be in a position where I was helping people navigate grief, but I was also trying to navigate my own grief, trying to understand grief. Um, And one thing I found that was very helpful was music. Ah, okay. Okay. That that is interesting because it leads me to ask you something else about grieving and balance and wellness. Um in in your professional opinion, how do we delineate when and where 
wellness should be practiced individually versus when we should hold out a hand for, you know, community or professional support? I would say there's no specific one answer. I think it really depends on what a person's baseline is. Mm -hmm. If I know that at my baseline, I am able to go outside every day, not necessarily to, you know, complete a task or an activity, but maybe just walk around the block. And I realized that I haven't been able to do that in weeks. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that's subjective. So based on what my normal capabilities are, if I'm not able to really keep up with those things and I'm noticing that it's not just me finding excuses not to do it. It's like, I physically feel like I can't do it. I've isolated myself. Um, people are not hearing from me. Um, and it's not even just people are not hearing from me, but if they if they contact me, I don't answer. Mm -hmm. um, say I'm someone who's typically extroverted or, you know, I'm, I'm social and I'm just letting the phone ring off the hook for weeks at a time. That might be my indicator that, okay, it's, it's time to intentionally reach out to a professional. And sometimes the reaching out to a professional precedes the reaching out to people that are already in my life. And that might be because, you know, Everyone has their biases as much as they might love me. Um, they might want to tell me how to grieve in a way that I don't think it's helpful for me. And everyone kind of has a solution. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the good part about reaching out to a professional or seeking a professional's help is that they're here to help you navigate. That is their sole purpose in your life. Um, they can't take offense to the way that you decide to do things. They can't, you know, get attached to your outcomes um, or, you know, they're not supposed to literally this person's role in your life is to help you get through. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. And I think that is what's so beautiful about the therapeutic relationship is that it's the only one sided relationship that's actually healthy. Wow. That's interesting because I think about the cultural frames for therapy and particularly, you know, from my deeply southern, um, African perspective um, and again I know you and your family are from the Caribbean my husband is also from the Caribbean we don't really have a frame for therapy and seeking out that kind of support so very often there's shame about it when it happens um, or it's something we don't talk about you know you might discover that a member of your family is going to therapy but it's not like we're all sitting in a room together going what's your therapist saying about this <laughs> <laughs> exactly um i know you know for people who look like us it's just very it's like what are you going to therapy for you know is something wrong and then they kind of give you this look are you crazy are they going to try to give you medication it, it just be it snowballs into this whole like you know girl don't don't tell strangers about your business and you know i don't i heard it all that's funny. I've heard it all as a client, and now I hear it about myself as a therapist, where it's just like, why would you want to tell her all those things? Um, but I, I think one thing that has helped me um, conceptualize what therapy is, or in my mind should be, mm -hmm. it wasn't just going through therapy, but it was also knowing that everyone, everyone needs a sounding board, right? Yes. And also, that person can't necessarily be someone you know. <laughs> yeah you know from outside um no matter how well-intentioned people are who love you they are 
you know, they're they're biased, they're attached in, in some ways, maybe good ways, healthy ways, mm-hmm. you know. Attachment isn't always bad. No. But I think it's very different to see someone in the confines of either an office or a virtual space once a week and the entire relationship with them is dedicated to bettering yourself. Right. As opposed to having someone who you may have to pull weight for them at some point too. And that is normal. That's friendship. That's relationship. But I think that's what's different with therapy is that there's no obligation. There's no expectation. It's not even ethical for me to, you know, have a conversation with my therapist and be like, so what are you going through and how do you need me to be there for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love the phrase that you used, um, pulling weight for someone, because I do think the process of coming out of your grief is like shedding something that's been heavy and maybe even oppressive. So I think that is a wonderful illustration for people who might not have the language to, you know, when I say that I couldn't breathe, that, that, there were times when I just didn't, I didn't think I could get through the moment, but of course you must. So you do. Um, right. That leads me to my next question where we're now talking about writing our way to wellness um, let's talk maybe about some of your favorite ways to engage in writing as a mindful practice related to grief and healing. So writing is something funny enough, as much as I consider myself a writer, I have such a push and pull relationship with, um, writing from a place of brokenness and grief does not feel the same as writing because at my favorite coffee shop and it's I love the music it's so cool you know I have this little thing that I want to I'm in love or you know it's just a it's a different type of writing um to write for wellness and write through your grief than it is to just write because you enjoy writing um so one of the assignments that I used to give my clients when I was doing grief counseling was to write a letter to the person or you know, to the chapter or the situation or the opportunity you've lost. So if it's not a person, you personify whatever it is. Um, and I found that to be one of the most healing interventions. Mm. You know, having written to a person that I lost before, I was just like, you know what, I wonder if this helps other people. Mm. And I was so shocked to see that it did. And I was like, how do we make this something that could help if it's not a person? And it's like, just personify it. Wow. Um, and I find that writing to this person or this thing um, is an outlet for getting to say the things you never got to say. Mm-hmm. The things you would have wanted them to know if you didn't realize that time, you know, that your time with them was about to end mm-hmm. or that their time on this planet was about to end. Um, so people would often write things like, hey, I always wanted you to know that that gift you gave me that one time you know, meant a lot to me, or I always wanted you to know that you were the inspiration or the reason that I chose my career. And that was something I wrote in my letter to my old therapist because she, she was very much the reason why I chose this career path. Wow. Um, And so people would say things, they would admit things that they had, you know, never shared that they might've felt guilty about. They would um, share triumphs. Mm -hmm. They would say things like, I just want you to know I'm okay. Wow. Um, and they don't they would also say things like, I don't know how to be okay without you and I'm trying to figure that out. 
Yeah. So it left space for all of those feelings. And um, that that would be one way I would think, you know, writing through grief could be helpful. Or even just, you know, journaling can be a little bit difficult when you try to think about it in paragraphs and, and you know, whole letters. Sometimes I tell clients to write down bullet points. If you can think in bullet points, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you want to do a T-chart, things that have changed since I lost this, mm-hmm. things that are the same. Um, and then reading back what you've written is probably even more powerful than just writing it out sometimes. Yep. Okay. You were just in my head because I was listening to you talking about your writing process and it not really necessarily be connected to writing your way through things. And one of my favorite quotes is Flannery O'Connor, who said, I write because I don't know what I think until I read what I say. And I did not realize how therapeutic writing for me was about all things. So, you know, as a writer, I will sit down with a story in my head and have a sense of how it's going to end. And most of the time, the act of writing it takes me to a conclusion that I hadn't anticipated or even imagined. So the the practice of writing for me is itself therapeutic. And I've learned to just embrace it as a journey. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and start here. I have nowhere, no idea where I'm going. Um, Right. I learned that that is a particular kind of gift because I trust myself to kind of release myself to the muse and say, all right, Let's see where this goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good point you made. Even just the last sentence, let's see where this goes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea of let's see where this goes for anything scares people. Oh, absolutely. Um, I am very much afraid of let's see where this goes in almost every aspect. Um, but I think when it comes to writing and journaling, that's a great place to start. Um I know that there is this assignment that my old art teacher used to do, and she'd be like, put your pencil on the paper and just don't lift it up. See where it goes. Wow. Um, And I think very much so the same thing can go for writing. Put your pencil down and see where it goes. You know, don't stop until you, until your brain has stopped. Yeah. Um, And that can bring about a whole lot of emotion, but it can also bring about a whole lot of healing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, a lot of people aren't as, um, I wouldn't say good at, but a lot of people struggle with having conversations about these things, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a, with a professional or a friend. It's just very hard to verbalize apps because you're looking so hard. It's like you're trying to, you know, scroll through a Rolodex for proper wording and like, how am I going to form this sentence? It's like if you write and you're, you know, you're not even necessarily writing for someone else. If it's just for you and if it's just for you to read, you don't have to worry about how nicely the words come out. Right. You write whatever comes to mind. You you do that run-on sentence if you want to. Mm-hmm. You write a, t- a two, three-word sentence if you want to. So, yeah, I think that's really helpful to think of it as, like, wh- wherever it goes, it goes. I, I love that. I'd actually recommend that our listeners consider that, you know, either as an art project or a writing prompt, you said. Put the pencil down and don't lift it and see where it goes. I I think so many people would be fascinated by what 
might come of releasing yourself to the process. That's scary. You know, you may learn something, admit something, or discover something that you would never have birthed otherwise. Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about self-care then. How do you recommend people embrace themselves in moments when big emotions are calling? Um, I would say as much of a buzz term self-care is these days, um, there's a place for it, a very important place. And, you know, when we are grieving and our bodies are quite literally doing the things we don't want them to do, um, you know, making it hard for us to get up. We feel heavy. We feel tired. Our stomachs hurt. Grieving is very much um, a somatic experience as well, where it's not just our brains and our hearts that are grieving. Our bodies feel different. Um, so one way that I've found to be helpful to take care of oneself uh, when you're grieving is to hydrate. Um, not just because you're you know, losing electrolytes when you cry, but also you're just tired. Yeah. Um, there's a, a level of tiredness that is very different than your normal tiredness. Yeah. Um, it kind of just encapsulates your whole being. And it's like, <laughs> I'm not just sleep tired. Like, this is the type of tired that sleep isn't necessarily going to fix. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, people always tell you when you're grieving, make sure you eat. But sometimes it's, it's, it's really hard yeah. and just food. Um, so if that means your self-care today is that you drink a huge bottle of water, great. That's a start. Yeah. Um, if you need to liquefy your food, if you need a smoothie, um, you know, there's been times that I've been grieving and, and can't really get myself to want to take care of myself. So I'll give myself a little incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you at least get out of the bed, sometimes it's this serious. If you at least get out of the bed, make the bed and shower, you can get back in bed. I like that. Yeah. I like, and it's like, people will be like, when you got back in bed, it's like, that's not the point. (laughs) The point is that I achieved something today. I took care of my body. I made sure that I was clean. Mm -hmm. I even changed my sheets. Now my reward is that I get to rest again. Right. Right. Um, So taking, you know, baby steps, whatever. And I think it's very dependent on whatever the person might personally need. Mm -hmm. Um, if what I need is nourishment, maybe it's getting myself out of the house and the reward is that I get to, you know, eat something I really like right? or have a really good coffee, get some sort of calories into my system. Yeah. Um, if it's hard for me to want to be outside, give myself a reason to be outside. Mm-hmm. What do I like that's outside? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, for me today, um, my coping with grief practice is to go out and buy a book. Yeah. Because I like reading and sometimes writing is a little too hard. So I want to read with other what other people have written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So self-care can look different depending on who needs it okay. and, you know, what their needs are. Yeah. That's useful, I think, to help people demystify self-care because I'm reading a lot about it as kind of this privileged luxury experience. And I think people get caught up in chasing what they think is self-care when I really resonated with something you said. And I felt it on a deeply cultural level. You were talking about hydration. And I was thinking, you know what? Culturally, it's so much about 
hydration and moisturizing. Yes. <laughs> hey, that is what so body butter. That is so deeply cultural for me, but yet so healing and so resonant. I was like, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Skincare is a buzz term now, but you know, skincare is a thing for us. Yeah. Like, it's like, put that Vaseline on, mix it with some cocoa butter. Come on. Whenever, you know, shea butter, something, butter. Yeah. something on your lips. My mom yeah. would always say that. Something on your lips, no matter what the situation was. I'm like, mom, I'm crying. Now you can't be looking at she about the mouth. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> As the mother of a daughter, I feel that deep. I do. Oh, uh, so maybe it's maybe it's moisture, maybe it's hydration, maybe it's oiling your scalp. Yeah, you know it really is dependent on what your own situation is and what your needs are. But like you said, self care is not a luxurious thing necessarily. It doesn't have to be, right? Yeah, it doesn't have to be expensive trips to the spa or you know buying everything at Sephora. It could be simple. Yeah, that's an important point. I I appreciate you bringing that out. Um. As we are making our way towards the close, tell me what feels sacred to you this month. Time. Time is so sacred to me. Um, Knowing that it comes to an end, right? Time keeps moving, but it comes to an end for each person. Um. So the end of the time that I have on the planet is not the end of time. It's just the end that I got to participate in and that I got to have. Um, And I think lately I've valued my time more than ever before. It's made me rethink a lot of things. It's made me so much more appreciative of the minutes and the seconds I get to spend talking to or seeing people that I love. Um, And I think it's definitely the hottest commodity for me right now yeah I think as when people say my time is important to me they mean like you know just at work or being compensated for things but when I think about my time being important I think about the fact that when you lose somebody it feels like you know you never feel like you've had enough time yeah um and I've been feeling that a lot recently is I haven't had enough time so now I'm trying to maximize my time without necessarily chasing it yeah. Oh, wow. That's heavy. Maximizing your time without chasing shit. I just, that, that has weight and presence for me. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I know that for me, as I've gotten older, I have to acknowledge that practically there is more of my life behind me, ahead of me. And to the same, to the same point, you Take that differently. You know, when you begin to measure each of your moments in your days, how do you choose to fill them well? And I think it might be a heavy lesson to learn, but it can be a sacred one as well because you are more discreet about the choices. Is this worth my energy and my effort? Or do I choose to spend time with people who are important to me and, you know, people with whom I'm not always able to gather? And that can be a gift. It may cost you something to receive the gift. But mm-hmm. I think it's what you do with your circumstances that really matters. I didn't hear that last part. I said I, I think it matters to you what you do with the time you have when you begin to appreciate how important and valuable it is. Because it's our only non-renewable resource. You cannot get time back. Very true. 
I like how you put that. Yeah. Um, time is a non-renewable resource. When it's up, it's up. That's right. So, yeah, I would say time is very sacred to me. Um, people call, you know, people say quality time and stuff. Quality time, yes, very much so. But time in general is quality, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, when people say quality time, they're usually referring to, like, using it in memorable ways or, you know, curated ways. But I'm also noticing that time doesn't necessarily have to be curated to be good and to be enjoyed. Yeah. That part, that part right there. Um, yeah. Do you have some words of wisdom or something maybe that you've written that you want to share with us as we close? Maybe a prompt or a you know a guided thought that we could close with. I actually, I'm gonna try to look at it while I'm here. And this is something that you can listen to later if you'd like to. Um, it's a poem, poem called "The Guest House." by Rumi, um, but it, there's a shortened version that I've heard recorded on a Coldplay album that I really like. Mm. Um, and I've used this with clients as well. And it's basically just about processing emotion. Mm -hmm. I think processing emotion is one of the biggest parts of properly getting through grief. Mm -hmm. But it says this being human is a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, and some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. We welcome and entertain them all and are grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I'm sure that that's going to speak to a lot of people in ways that they didn't know they needed. Um, so on behalf of myself for this therapy session that I didn't know how much I needed <laughs> and on behalf of the Girls Right Now community whom you've served and supported in so many ways um, in this our inaugural episode of Writing Our Way to Wellness I want to thank you for your time and for your wisdom um, and wish all of those who will listen to this podcast that they might find some healing and some inspiration in what you have shared with them. So for all of us, I say thank you very much. Thank you for this conversation. Um, I needed it as well. So, you know, I'm very happy to have been asked to do it. And, you know, I would have said something super cringy just now, happy grieving, but there really is no happy grieving. So um, just be kind to yourselves and um, do what you need. Be kind to yourselves and do what you need. And, and that is how we will end. I want to express my gratitude to Shell and Nay for engaging so gracefully in the conversation about grief, memory, and the value of tending to ourselves. I also want to thank you our listeners, for joining us in this first episode of Writing Away to Wellness, a podcast published bi-weekly on Thursdays. Follow along as we foster spaces where emotions are seen with an open heart and words received with reverence. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the Girls Right Now substack at girlsrightnowmedia.org and catch us wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is a production of Girls Right Now. It was edited and hosted by me, 
Sally Familia, produced by Sally Familia with the support of Bonnie Curra and Catherine Dustin, and recorded by Cheryl Carter-Wilson. Thank you for your time and energy, and remember to be kind to yourselves today.